I have been, you know, really quite public about my climate anxiety. When I started reckoning with full and dire changes to our planet that are taking place and will take place no matter what we change in the short term or how much worse it can be if we don't change nearly everything immediately, I slipped backwards off the ledge of worry and understandable concern and I fell deep into the chasm of fear and terror and episodes of psychosis, which sometimes showed up as paranoid delusion. It took some very smart doctors, some very clever drugs, a lot of uncomfortable work on my part, a lot of love and support from my family and my workplaces. But these days I am enormously better. I, I can't even believe that a me now exists, to be honest. Unfortunately, the planet is, is not much better off since that happened. It's around 2014 when all that went down. But I'm here to tell you it's a miracle that I can be with the grim reality that we all face, to be fully aware of the dire and intersectional consequences of global warming, not just the sea level rise or the increased deadliness of heat waves and storms, but how these things will decimate economies, states, defense plans, food security, healthcare, the list goes on. To be with all of that, you're right to be devastated. The, the level of confrontation and grief in my experience that I felt is up there with being with the most terminal diagnosis from a healthcare professional about you or, or someone that you love. And that's just that was just reading about it. Have a think about what it's like to be a scientist researching that data, to be exposed to the full enormity of the changes that are happening and to see not only in action on the governmental front, but also willful repression of the changes you recommend should be implemented as soon as possible so that we can try to mitigate this change and this danger as much as we can. It'd be a tough job, wouldn't it? Well, my podcast guest this week is someone who does just that. Dr. Joel Gerges is an award-winning climate scientist and writer. Between 2018 and 2021, Joel served as a lead author on the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's sixth assessment report, a global state-of-the-art review of climate change science. Her latest book, an ode to that work, is called Humanity's Moment, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope. And as intense a conversation as you're about to listen to, I'm here to tell you that there, there is hope. Before we get to that conversation, we've got to pay the bills. So here's some ads. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Recycling your coffee cup is, is not on the same level as the sort of political and consumer power that we need to really unleash to bring about the removal of the social license for the continued trashing of our planet to continue. And so for me, I found the federal election in May a really interesting social tipping point moment um, in our political history because really, if you think about it, it was a climate election in many ways. You know, we'd seen the Lismore floods, we'd come through the Black Summer, and, and I think a lot of people were really, really concerned about, because we can see it, right? We can see that climate change is happening. And that is really a moment, again, for us to say at the, at the local level, the state level, and also at the federal level, that the social licence doesn't exist for this anymore. And so that's where activism comes in. That's also where corporate power comes in, in terms of if you're someone that's a shareholder or a board member, there's a lot you can do to remove that social licence. And that's when things start to change. That is the esteemed climate scientist and author, Dr Joel Gerges. This is Osher Ginsberg. Better than yesterday. G'day. Welcome to the show. This is Osher Ginsberg. Better than yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. That's me. And the show is better than yesterday. That's this. And this show is here to make your day-to-day better than yesterday. I'm here to help facilitate that. I've been here since 2013. We have three podcasts that come out a week, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Mondays, Wednesdays, and with a guest. Fridays, I'm here with you. And we hopefully help make your day better than yesterday by having conversations with people from all over the world, from all walks of life, people who are experts in the field. And there's hundreds of episodes that go all the way back to 20, 2013, September 2013. And yeah, I'm Osher, I'm a dad, I'm a stepdad, I'm a TV show host, I'm a podcaster, I'm walking around the house without my walking stick. And um, I'm extraordinarily grateful for everyone that showed up on Friday night. On Friday night, we did a, um, I guess, a test run of a new show that I'm working on. And, uh, mate, it went off like a fucking frog in a sock. It was great. It was really, really cool. It was a smash. People laugh from front to back. And I don't know, sometimes when a project, when you start it out, it doesn't kind of work right off the bat. You're like, oh man, we've got to change heaps about it too hard. But we all went out afterwards for a chat and the consensus was like, yeah, we got something here. Now what do we do? So I'm about to go deep diving into learning how to book a show into a comedy festival. Never done that before, but uh, Heggy, I might call you <laughs> to lean on on that. I can see how you think a touring six people is 
fuck, man, touring six people is hard. But because, you know, it's six hotel rooms, that's six plane tickets. That's, it's a lot. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. We'll see what we can do. But it was awesome. Thanks to everyone that came along. Uh, it worked. The idea works. And the ways that we can make it better are, are pretty clear. And um, yeah, I'm stoked. It's, it's not often that I have been... I like being caught in the momentum of the creation of a project until you start to get that feedback stage. I think, you know, most people would understand that. But the thing is, like, like I said the other day, like there is no success without failure. Failure is an irrevocable part of your journey to success. Getting it wrong is an inseparable part of getting it right. And you obviously, you try to get it wrong less and eventually you get it right more often than you don't and then you get get right so often that when you do get it wrong, people go, that's fine. You normally get it right. And no one cares. So it's rare that I've been in, you know, I like the exciting part of, you know, I'm sure everybody does do the exciting part of getting to, I guess, to test, to get to market, to test to market. And the test went great. But now we're faced with, whoa, fuck, well, what do we, what do we do with this? So what to think about, <laughs> but hopefully it'll be all good. And um, big plans, I guess, big plans for next year. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see what we do there. Let me tell you about my guest today. Dr. Joelle Gerges is an award-winning climate scientist and writer. She's an internationally recognized expert in Australian and Southern Hemisphere climate variability and change. She's a person who's authored over 100 scientific publications. And her research focus is basically providing a, a long-term historical context for assessing recently observed climate variability and climate extremes. Now, between 2018 and 2021, Joelle served as a lead author on the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the sixth assessment report, which is a global state-of-the-art review of climate science. Aside from her academic work, Joelle has written two books, uh, Sunburnt Country, The Future and History of Climate Change in Australia, and her latest book that we talk a lot about today, Humanity's Moment a climate scientist's case for hope. I'm going to quote Dr. Gerges directly about this book. In her words, after nearly 25 years in this area and spending three years working at the UN level, assessing the state of global climate change, I felt absolutely compelled to write this book. People need to be aware of what the scientific community can see unfolding right now. We have less than a decade to turn things around, so it could not be more or more urgent. After writing this book, at least now I can say that I did all that I could to warn the public that I was on the right side of history, end quote. Fuck, just even saying that out loud is hard. Listening to it, I'm sure it'd be hard. This is someone who's worked in the this field their entire career. But, telling you, Still worth listening to. A couple of weeks ago on a Friday, I spoke to you about how it felt to me to have this conversation and I applaud you for being willing to listen to it because it's not easy going. Her book is out now. It's available everywhere. And I promise you there is hope in this conversation. I'm proud to bring it to you. Enjoy this chat with Dr. Joel Gerges. 
Joel, I'm I'm just so extraordinarily grateful that you took the time to speak with me today. I don't know if you know anything about my story. I don't expect you would. You're a very busy person. Um, but a, a large part of my story, Joel, is that I actually went proper crazy, like into episodes of psychosis that manifested as paranoid delusions wow. around climate anxiety. And it was terrifying. I ended up on antipsychotics. I was seeing mm. visions. I was living in America at the time in Venice Beach. I was seeing visions. I'd, I'd blink and I'd see the coast being inundated. I'd see the f ocean flooding down the street. I wouldn't see anyone else running. I'd blink again and it'd be gone. I, I proper wanted to run up to people and grab them and scream at them going, what are we fucking doing? I don't fucking care who wins Survivor. I do, but I don't. We have to fucking <laughs> figure this thing out right now. Stop. What are you doing? But I didn't, thankfully, because I didn't want to be committed in a foreign country. But I went through, it was extraordinarily painful and it took a huge amount of work. And there's, I honestly got to tell you, Joel, it was a time in my life when I would never have ever had this conversation with you. Mm. It would have been the most terrifyingly painful thing. Wow. Uh, I'm still kind of reluctant to speak to you right now. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. But I know, Joel, I know that if, if I back away from the things that frighten me, I'll end up living my life on the head of a pin. The only... If, if I face the things that frighten me and I lean into the things that frighten me, my world gets bigger, my possibilities expand. And I went through that entire experience. It took a long time. Great doctors, great meds. Mm. I had an extreme response to climate science. Do you think that overwhelming emotional realisation, people are smart, they don't have to see too many graphs to understand that we're fucked if we don't do anything. Do you think that overwhelming response is, a th is one of the things that's stopping us from taking action? Absolutely. I mean, your example, it's really interesting for me to hear that. It's probably on one end of the spectrum. But, like, to be honest, it's a really, in many ways, a rational response. When we're talking about <laughs> something as, as huge as that, no, honestly, honestly, Osha, because if you think about it, I mean, you've taken it to a very extreme part of the, you know, conclusion and, and, and response. And I guess the reason why I wrote this book is to try and provide people with that, that grounding of what is a scientist who's been immersed in this material for over 20 years, has sat at the UN table yeah. and really tried to condense this down. So where are we really? And that's really, I guess, the, the starting point to, to really get a, a firm grasp of where we are right now. But to be honest, it is really, really overwhelming. And that's part of the reason why I also shared my own story. And, and I hope that it, it, it provides permission for other people to be honest about how they feel about it. So I appreciate your honesty. Honest, like really, it is, uh, it is not an easy thing to talk about mental health. And it is not an easy thing to talk about really complex science that is sometimes really alienating. And so what I've tried to do is try and rehumanize this issue for people in a way that provides an entry point into something that a lot of people, it is a rational response to want to push it away and really not deal with it. But unfortunately, I think most of us now understand the lived experience is really crashing through our front door and it's, it's almost impossible in a country like Australia to ignore it. Speaking of crashing through your front door, you are in the northern part of New South Wales, uh, which I think we've run out of one in 100 year flood analogies. I think it's the fourth time in six months. As someone who's been working in climate science for over two decades, someone who's been as a, 
someone who's been involved in the authoring of the international intergovernmental, uh, uh, the, I can't, I'm too nervous to talk about it, the IPCC, someone who's been, you know, um, someone who's been involved in the authoring of, of these things, to see it in your street, what's that like for you? For me, it was a really surreal experience because I think prior to working at that UN level, I had compartmentalised my work because you can imagine somebody like me, Osha, you wouldn't like my job much at all. You know, I'm in front of this information day in, day out, and it is really confronting. And there are times where it can kind of pierce through and then become in some ways uh, really depressing and sometimes even unmanageable to be able to. If you take in the full reality of it, it's really, really hard. And so as I wrote as I was part of this um, IPCC report, there was just extreme after extreme after extreme that kept playing out. And as I said, yeah, I, I live in northern New South Wales. I've got family in Lismore. And to have all of this happening was really just this sort of collision of my worlds, my personal and private life really colliding with my professional life. And then that's part of the reason why I personally felt compelled to put aside my own research and write this book. Now, I'm quite terrified about it being out in the public, I must say, in many ways, because it's almost taboo for a scientist to share their emotional response. And also being a woman, there are some people that look to discredit me and undermine me for being too emotional or too uh, whatever they want to say about that, right? And so for me to put myself out there like that has been very anxiety-inducing, I can assure you. Um, but to be honest, yeah. someone in my role, if I'm not being, if I'm not being honest and genuine about the reality of the situation and also the possibility that's here because I think that sometimes people forget that part of the equation. We only talk about the apocalypse and all this doom and gloom, but actually the report has positive messages in there too and that gets buried and that's a real shame and that's part of the reason why I did write the book as well to really remind people that really at the end of the day how bad we let things get is still very much in our hands and I mean that. I really mean that. Geophysically, we can't say there's no evidence to suggest that we're, we're facing unprecedented runaway climate change that we can't get back under control. So that, that window of opportunity is narrowing and, and, and closing. So I want to be honest about that. But that's why this next decade is critically important in terms of the carbon budget and in terms of how we can start to reel things back in. So it's a very real risk, but it is not completely out of our hands to the point of it being something that really warrants that response, I suppose, of, of feeling like there's absolutely nothing we can do. we just got to sit here and watch it play out and, and, and that we're helpless. Yeah, it, like like watching, if you're, like if you're a Scotland fan, watching the recent Rugby World Cup in Australia beat Scotland 84-0. It's not like <laughs> you're watching the TV going, well, I can do nothing. I can do nothing about that. Like, it's not like you're just watching this f- football game on the TV going, well, my team is losing and now they're really losing. Now even the linesman scoring a try. You know, it's you. we can't actually do something about the outcome, which is extraordinarily uh, empowering. And I do want to get to that stuff. I, I, I would love to know, though, I, I've never spoken. I've spoken with plenty of climate activists. I'm, I'm so excited and terrified, but excited to speak to someone who is an author of IPCC. I remember, I think it was 2007 or five, one of those, I think it was, might've been 2007 mm. or five, um, when I was like, wow, this report came out and 97% of these thousands and thousands of scientists all agreed that we're fucked if we don't do something. And here's all these solutions. Finally, we're going to be okay. <laughs> and then fucking nothing happens. Mm. 
<laughs> I can't imagine what it's like to be involved in that and just like throwing $100 notes on the fire. <laughs> you know? Well, look, it's incredibly frustrating because I think that's the sting in the tail is that we know what we need to do. We actually have the solutions <laughs> at our fingertips and that's what makes it really I think really challenging, but also the other side of that is that there is something we can do. But that's why I think for me, as I wrote this book, realizing that people need to understand that we're living through the greatest social movement in human history right now. And whether or not we choose to be a part of that or not, I think is the really exciting part. So we can get to, we can start to talk about that when you're ready. But I think that was the thing that was the turning point for me when I realized that this is, this is the human story, Osha, when you think about it's this tug of war for social justice, okay? If you think about it in terms yeah. of the civil rights movement in the US or gender equality all over the world, it, it is never a done deal. It isn't a done deal for very long and we always have to incrementally keep moving forward. And I think when you think about it in that longer perspective, that to me becomes pretty empowering. That's not to say that every day is a good day. It's not to say that sometimes I don't feel pretty hopeless about things, but it does get me back on the horse, it makes me realize that I can choose how I show up. It's the intersection of, honestly, the, the, the kind of therapy that helped, you know, with a lot of meds on board, not a lot, well, enough to, to loosen the bolts um, so I could move things around a bit. Um, the intersection of science and acceptance commitment therapy, uh, it, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me of like, yes, this is scary. It's so scary. And if I sit in how scary it is, it's just getting more scary. All I need to do is take a step in any direction towards where I want it to go and it'll feel less scary, even though I'm terrified to take that step. And you take that tinier step and go, whoa, okay, it is a little less scary because now I feel like I'm doing something. And I, in my action, I now have agency and I am now more in control of this thing that I'm watching on TV unfold. Um, Absolutely. And for me, that's just kind of fascinating how at your work and particularly in your in your book, Humanity's Moment, your, your, your work really kind of pushes into the, well, here's how human behaviour kind of intersects with why we are where we are, which I think is really what we have to come down to, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, facts and figures will only get us so far. At the end of the day, we are emotional beings and we're relational beings as well. And we all have our own personal histories that stop us from engaging in these types of issues for a range of different reasons, right? So if you've got personal trauma in your background, you might find it hard to just keep your head above water on a daily basis, right? So, and other people have different capacities at different stages of their life. And so I fully appreciate, as somebody that does actually have quite complex trauma in my own background, and that's why it's almost ironic I've written a book like this, but that's why I, I feel like I was kind of the right person to write it because I understand that there are a range of really personal issues that can lead to the disengagement, can lead to that loss of faith in humanity of feeling like, you know, humanity's screwed, you can't trust anyone, everyone has got this sort of dark edge to them and no one really cares. Trust me, I go there, right? I I, I really do and that's because of some of my own life experience but with a lot of work as well and a lot of support, I've also learned that you can rein that in and then you can choose how you find meaning in your own life because ultimately that's what it's about right we want to have a meaningful life we want to connect with other people with with, sh- with similar shared values and and that sort of thing and and for me I guess as a climate scientist it, it, I suppose it's it's so compelling to want to save the planet right we, we, if you stop and you look around at the 
we live in a magnificent country here in Australia. We have more unique plants and animals than anywhere on the planet, even more than places like Brazil or Madagascar or Papua New Guinea. You think of those places as being incredible, and they are. But Australia is, is, is truly extraordinary. And so as a scientist, you know, we are blessed with all these national treasures. We have the longest continuous Indigenous culture in the world. I mean, the list goes on and on. We're a multicultural society as well, which I think is Again, really extraordinary if you think about it. We're this oasis of what's possible if you think about it like that. And so we live in an amazing country. And, and for me, I want to be part of bringing to life this vision, which is leaving a legacy more of care and repair rather than sort of desolation and destruction and this other kind of narrative that's out there about this inevitability that there has to be this apocalypse that unfolds as a result of this. And I think ultimately that's a really pessimistic worldview. And so I guess my, my book is evidence-based hope, if you want to think about it like that. So I've trawled through this document for everybody, I suppose, that wants to read this material. And, and you know, I know that it's really overwhelming. I mean, for instance, a single volume of this report is a million words, yeah. right? And so there are three main volumes and then there are another three supplementary volumes and then there's technical appendices and all sorts of stuff. So effectively what I've tried to do is sift through the main things that most people need to know and then put it together in a way that I hope removes the obstacles to entry in terms of having really clear language and trying to make it as jargon-free as possible. But it is it's science, okay, so it is some of it is technical. But then I'm also trying to, as I say in the, in the book, connect the head with the heart. Yeah. So it's not just about intellectually understanding something, it's emotionally feeling something. Yeah. And then making that connection, I think, becomes this really strong motivating factor for people to do something. Because if you stop and think about climate change, not just about numbers on a graph, if you start to think about it, about the people and places we love, because that's ultimately what it is, right, then then everything changes. In my, That's been my experience. Everything starts to change. The only thing I can compare it to uh, as far as like the emotional devastation that would stop you in your tracks, but then understanding that if I don't take action, it's going to be even worse. Uh, you know, I try to think of like the most horrible thing I can think of, like pediatric cancer, all right? Fucking awful. Yep. To hear the diagnosis, if you sat there and you got, you know, I think about little Wolfie, if you're sitting on my lap and I hear the oncologist go, yeah, he's got a tumour the size of a golf ball in his brain, he's three years old. Like the emotional devastation that would go through me like a claymore mine, would st I wouldn't be able to move for a week at least, right? Yet, if I didn't move and I didn't take action, I know exactly what's going to happen. So in spite of that emotional horror, I will still show up for this boy. I will still look at him and say, I'm going to do my best. I will let him know it's going to hurt, but it's going to be okay. And I will be with him every step of the way. And anyone listening would do that for their kid. Anybody. They would overcome everything. They would put themselves aside and just go. They just would. And they'd deal with it. They'll deal with it later. When it comes to like... Something like some people are probably still like me. They like I, honestly, Joel. I, I would sit there in a rental car, like I'd be doing work in America. I lived in America when this all happened. I'd jump in a rental car, and it had the word had climate control written on my dashboard. I would see the word climate and want to shit and vomit and run all at the same time. And I'm like on a highway, you know. So I understand what it is to be have intense, intense physical bodily reactions to this kind of stuff. Do you think a similar process of 
horrible grief and acceptance needs to happen before we can get into action? Absolutely. What you just told me right there, I think, really nails it, to be honest, because if you think, if we continue on with the medical analogy, like if you know that, if you knew that somebody that you loved had this terrible diagnosis, would you just say, oh, there's nothing we can do and you just throw your hands up and do nothing about it, you know, and just assume that this person's going to die, there's nothing that you can do. That's effectively that that doomism, right? So that that to me is is equivalent to climate doomism, where you just think that there's nothing you can do, let it all just burn, basically. And that's not true. As I said before, the scientific evidence doesn't bear that out. So what you said to me is something that I do talk about a, li- a little bit in my book as well, is this idea that if we do stop and think about it as as this sort of response to protecting the things that we love, then it becomes really, really different. You, you don't just uh, accept this foregone conclusion that there's nothing that can be done. When you love someone, you would throw everything you've got at trying to protect them and bring them back into good health and so on. And the same is true with the planet, okay? So for me, that is a good analogy and it's one I think a lot of people can respond to because we all know what it's like to have someone we care about um, in a vulnerable position and that is it's shocking, but it's it's a visceral, primal response to want to protect. And I think that for, for many people, particularly people who do have children, climate change is a really terrifying issue to, to stop and, and to think that, will David Attenborough documentaries be archival footage of a lost world, right? So are we, are we looking at down the barrel of that type of future? And I would argue that things are going to get worse before they get better, so we have to be honest about that because there is a certain committed level of warming uh, that's in the pipeline from historical emissions and, and from our current trajectory. But that's what makes this moment all the more important, right? Because it's, it is this pivotal moment in human history where we can really still choose the trajectory that we we go down. And that to me is what makes it so important because it's the difference between being able to get the condition under control or not. And we're not there at that or not part of the equation yet. We're, it's not at the stage where it's all runaway climate change. But that we could go there, right? But we don't want to go there. And that's why the IPCC provides a whole range of different scenarios in terms of possible futures from low emissions all the way through to very high emission fossil fuel intensive um, scenarios. And we can choose. We can still choose. And, and so for me, um, giving up and saying there's nothing we can do is just say, okay, we're all okay with the high end, you know, worst case scenario uh, side of the projections, but the lower ends are still within our grasp. And so for me, it's just stopping to think about, about that. And there is a lot we can do. And I think when you do regain that sense of agency that you can do something, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be a climate scientist or a climate activist or something as, as extreme as that, although you can be and we need more of those, both of those things. So I'm not saying like I'm very, I welcome that, but there's little things that you can do that can also help. And I think that's, that's really important and realising that you're a part of something. And so it's like a drop in the ocean becomes the ocean, yeah. right? So when you have lots of drops, you end up with an entire ocean. So I think it's one of those things of realising that you can feel really insignificant with this topic because it is enormous and it is, and, and I had that sense when I was working at, you know, at the UN level where you're literally looking around the table and I had people from Colombia and, you know, Russia and Mexico, everybody around the table is from everywhere. And it is really overwhelming to be the only Australian sitting at that, that table for that chapter and realise the, the sort of enormity of it 
but realizing also that when we all chip in, we did something extraordinary. We produced the most um, thorough climate change assessment report that was humanly possible, uh, and we can do that globally when it comes to the response as well. So I think for me, my book reflects that sense of optimism that when people, there's a lot of altruism in the world still, and sometimes you forget that. Sometimes you can get into this really black and white thinking, well, I can certainly, where I feel like no one cares about this. People are so selfish, they don't care, um, and all that sort of stuff. But then when you work at, as an IPCC author, that kind of reconfigured my worldview where I really realised that's actually not the case. There are tons of amazing, inspiring people out there, and you can choose to be one of those people yourself, right? Yeah. So it's coming back to what you can do. You can choose to be part of the change you want to see rather than sitting there curled up in the fetal position saying there's nothing we can do, the world is screwed and all that sort of stuff. And, and not, not to say also, I want to be clear, that that response is also really rational to want to disengage. And sometimes it's the best thing to yep. do because it's overwhelming and sometimes it's to protect your own mental health, you've got to be careful with this stuff. Absolutely. You know, that oncologist in my analogy before has eight appointments that day and then has to go home to her family you know, so, uh, which I do want to talk about a, a, a little later on. We've talked about personal choice quite a bit, yet for my, uh, for my money, someone being upset at me because I've put the wrong thing in my recycling bin is a bit of a, hey, how about get fucked? 50,000 square kilometres of Australian, uh, you know, ocean is now being opened up for gas exploration. My coffee cup in the wrong bin isn't the problem today. Uh, and the the idea that we are living in this kind of wild world, like it, it just blows my mind. The cynicism just blows my mind that I think it was British Petroleum, BP, they hired a PR firm to come up with the idea of carbon footprint. And your personal carbon footprint is, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Why that, how that, it was come, it came from a petroleum company to put the onus on the end user. How about you don't suck all the stuff up? out of the ocean. It's one thing to have a downstream solution, but goodness, Joelle, like where in your work and the IPCC work and all the scientists that got together, where does the kind of behavioral systems of, you know, governmental uh, direction and, and upstream solutions kind of come into it and why there's such a roadblock there? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I think that the idea of a carbon footprint, although it might have been, maybe there was a cynical origin of that, I still think there's a lot of value because, again, coming back to agency, there are small things that you can do and, and that sort of thing. But, yeah, it's true. You know, your recycling, your coffee cup is, is not on the same level as the sort of political and consumer power that we need to really unleash to bring about the removal of the social licence for the continued trashing of our planet to continue. And so for me, I found the federal election in May a really interesting social tipping point moment um, in our political history because really, if you think about it, it was a climate election in many ways. You know, we'd seen the Lismore floods, we'd come through the Black Summer, and, and I think a lot of people were really, really concerned about, because we can see it, right? We can see that climate change is happening. And so when you stop and think about it, the most powerful thing, in my view, that you can do is exercise your political power. So at all different levels, but that was an example of when we, uh, well, I should say, when I say we, many people really voted based on their, their values, their ethics, and they got behind candidates that reflected those values and ethics. 
And to be honest, as, as I said before, you, we can get cynical about politicians, but there's also a lot of people that do enter politics that do enter it with altruistic um, ambitions. And I think we saw that with some of the independent candidates, some of the green candidates and so on. And so I think that was a really interesting moment where a lot of Australians said, no, we don't want business as usual. We want to move away and we want to do politics really differently. And so for me, as I was sort of wrapping up the writing of this book, that happened. And that was for me this, this moment to realise again with this sort of social justice tug of war is that we can get behind people that are in a position to do something that will move us in a direction that is 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 close more closely aligned with what the science says we need to do but also with our ethics and values and so now here in Australia we do have a legislated emissions reduction target which is really good that that is in- extraordinary so in September this year we've now actually got a legislated um, target I mean that that is that is unbelievable for a country like Australia. Um, for me, that that was really a moment. But obviously, we do have a long way to go. You mentioned before the continued exploitation of fossil fuel projects. There's over a hundred that are still uh, on the books for this current government, and that is really a moment again for us to say, at the, at the local level, the state level, and also at the federal level, that the social license doesn't exist for this anymore. And so that's where activism comes in. That's also where corporate power comes in, in terms of if you're someone that's a shareholder or a board member, there's a lot you can do to remove that social license. And that's when things start to change. And then to me, that is being part of this huge social movement and this this revolution that we need to bring about a sustainable world because it's inevitable, right? It is absolutely inevitable if you stop and think about some of the um, the advances we've had in renewable energy for instance it's now cheaper um, like solar energy is now cheaper over 60 percent of the earth's surface now it's a no-brainer right and even we've got some of our our big um, you know mining giants getting behind this now understanding there's money to be made so they might not have the most altruistic motivation but to me whatever I just want to see it happen right and so in a country like Australia We can do it because we are the sunniest continent on the planet. I mean, the list goes on. We could be yeah. this rene- renewable energy superpower. So, so coming back to, I guess, your, your main point is, you know, th- there is this big picture perspective in terms of um, the, you know, the social systems, but those things are responding to what the people say we want or we don't want. And the worst thing we could possibly be right now is apathetic, right? And so yeah. if we don't, jump up and down and say we're not okay with this, then business as usual will continue. And I think the federal election in Australia was this really concrete example that showed we can do this. And so mm-hmm. that's not to be Pollyanna-ish about it. It's not a done deal. It's this, this, it's imperfect. But to to not celebrate these imperfect wins, I think, is um, is not helpful. I think we do need to really when we do have a, a big breakthrough, it's important to stop and realise we've had a breakthrough because they don't always happen. It's still a long road, of course, but yeah. it's, I think it's really, really positive. You mentioned uh, that figure and when, the, when that legislation did come in and the target came in, like no sooner had people hit publish on those news stories than news outlets were like, are you, are you kidding me? Like it's, it's, it's nowhere near enough. Like tell me about the idea of... Not letting perfect be the enemy of good. Yeah, look, I think that because if you stop and think about it, we're having to change the entire trajectory of a fossil fueled world. That's 
it's enormous, right? So decarbonizing the economy and all of our systems is not a trivial matter. So let's be honest, it, it's a really, really big task and, and, and it is the, the great challenge of this decade and this century, of course, but really this decade is really, really important. So I personally think that it's really symbolic and important that we do have a federally uh, legislated target. But if you stop and think at also what's happening at the state level, we're going to exceed a lot of those um, targets at, at that sort of state and territory level. So I think it's one of those things that, unfortunately, climate change and climate science and emission reductions is a highly politicised area in terms of the vested interests. There are a lot of people making a lot of money out of the continued exploitation of fossil fuels in this country, right? But if you stop and think about the decentralisation of uh, the energy sector in terms of people having solar panels on their rooftops and things like that, that becomes a whole other thing. And I think that's really, really exciting. So I personally think that, yes, the target could have been stronger, but it's certainly a step in the right direction, undoubtedly. And I yeah. think it is in line with some of the other developed countries. And, and so I think we will, we will continue to meet and beat these targets on those um, more uh, localised levels. And that's also the, the case in the US. It's also the yeah. case in other parts of Europe. So I think there'll always be people that will overachieve because we know that we need to do this. But look, I think given that we have such extensive fossil fuel reserves, it would be it would have been surprising to see anything stronger than that because, to be honest, yeah. we do need to transition out. We need to transition as quickly as possible and, and that would also yeah. involve not relying on things like gas as much and to really boost renewable energy and all of the transmission technology and the, and the storage technology that we need. I want to see the money go there. And, and, in, and in fairness, the government has stepped in the right direction in that area. So I think I'm not one of these people that likes to be cynical. I don't find it helpful because there yeah. are legitimately there are people at the table and it's not easy to be at the table uh, and sometimes people get really critical of IPCC scientists and say that we don't go strong far enough and we're not strong enough in our language and people will say that we're compromising. And it's not actually fair because we're doing our best within the constraints that we have available to us. And yeah. so I do have some sympathy for politicians who are engaging in a very adversarial environment and um, and are looking to change the culture of that. So that's where I feel like the independence and also this change of government right now is looking to be more inclusive, more diverse, and I think that's a step in, direction, in the right direction. So in terms of we can't expect it all happen, to happen overnight, but if you yeah. stop and you think about the fact that we are part of this immense social movement and this, this, this revolutionary moment that is happening, then your perspective changes, and I think maybe that's a more helpful way of thinking about it. I know I'm, I'm really hanging on the medical analogies here today, but here we go. Here comes another one. The idea that the the, the percent, I think it's is it 43% by yeah, 2030. 2030? And, and that's right. Yep. Yeah. So the, which isn't, it's not what we need. The percentage figure is much higher than that. Yet, if you have 100 cars in your fleet, are you going to change 43 of them? Probably not. You probably go, you've probably got to deal with the car company. You're like, Nah, screw it. Two years from now, we'll boom, we'll do the whole thing. So the, 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 the analogy I was going to go for is like if you're, and I know this because I had a celiac diet, wild thing. The psychosis turned on the gene expression, now I'm celiac. Wasn't, now I am. Wild, right? And, um, but they were telling me that in families where, say, there's like five people in the family and one of the kids is now celiac, so there's like 20% of the household if they eat gluten, they'll get extremely, extremely sick instantly and maybe, you know, face stomach cancer and horrible things like that. They go, 
20%, fuck it, no gluten in our house at all. Easy, done, problem solved. And part of me thinks that, and I have to be with the way that we behave as humans. We just go for, what's the easiest? Yes, okay, great, fine, this thing. What's the easiest way from here to just keep, keep doing what I wanna do? Okay. And that's the kind of, as long as we make the next step the e easier than what we're doing now, we just do it and we don't even think about it. Exactly, right? It's a no, it becomes a no-brainer. It becomes this thing that builds momentum and it just is the obvious thing to do. And so in fairness, again, with the government's target, they've said that it is like more of a floor, not a ceiling. And so for the more conservative members of the Australian public and, and, and the Australian parliament, that's just going to stop people like huffing into a bag and completely freaking out that we're going to crash our economy and all this sort of stuff. So we have to try and take as many people as we can with us. And it isn't exactly easy, but I think that it is a really important step. And I think, yeah. you know, what you're, what you're basically saying is that, you know, in the end it just becomes the sane and rational thing to do because why would you actually jeopardise the health of anyone in your family by, like, and, and is it really yeah. needed anymore? And particularly with fossil fuels, gosh, the, the list of adverse effects, right, are, are enormous, right? We're, we're cooking the planet as a result of our sort of overindulgence yeah. in fossil fuels. It, yeah, it, it's, it's, it makes me sad that it's economics that is, is changing this. But at the same time, like, if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. Like, the idea of 40 days of over 54-degree wet bulb temperatures in Pakistan, you know, that kind of thing doesn't move the needle. But, oh, hang on. The Australian ore industry is $70 billion. The projected green steel global industry is $700 billion. We've got a lot of iron ore. We've got a lot of sun. You know what? Let's get going on this. Like, breaks my heart, but fine. If that's what you need, fine. <laughs> Look, and I think that's absolutely a part of the equation, but something I write about a lot in my book as well is trying to move the conversation away from just the economics and also just the energy policy side of things, which I think can turn people off. It's not that, for, for some, for some, not, not that um, interesting or engaging. And so I, I personally think it's back coming back down to our culture and our cultural values and the things mm. that we actually care about because ultimately, coming back to a point I made earlier, is that we can exercise our political and consumer power. And so a lot of these corporations will do the things that we care about if we either vote them in or out, as I said before, the social licence. So it's, it's, it's really important for people to be engaged in multiple ways. And for me, I spend a lot of time talking about, um, for instance, culture and the creative arts sector and thinking about making that emotional connection because for a lot of people they look at graphs and some people can't even interpret the graphs. They might not have the background for that or it just doesn't engage them. But if you stop and you think about, for instance, when they had the Vietnam War, how there was photography of, remember that young girl fleeing the napalm bombing? And that was a moment, I think, oh a God. cultural moment where people really got the impact. Or here in Australia yeah. when they were flooding um, the Franklin River for Lake Pedder, and people saw that Rock Island Bend um, photograph of, of a great wilderness and what we were going to lose if we decided to, to do that. And, and that, they say, was a really important influence on the federal election in 1983 in terms of reversing that decision. So yeah, if you stop I remember you, that. Yeah, yeah, right? And so for me, when you stop and you think about the other ways that we experience the world, which aren't always through numbers and not even through words sometimes, if you think about some of the most powerful art that you've experienced, whether it be photography or film or whatever it might be, 
that can completely reconfigure your worldview. Like a really good documentary, for instance, can just change your whole perspective on something because it it taps into empathy, it taps into a different part of yourself. And so for me, if we're just having a conversation about energy policy and green steel and all those other things you just mentioned, we actually alienate a vast, like a huge portion of our population who are deep thinkers and deep feelers who might be able to help us with this cultural revolution that we need as well. So these shared values. And so for me, I see a, a really important role for the creative arts sector to engage in this. And I've, um, I'm really passionate about it, to be honest. So I feel that it's, it yeah. feels like the missing link in many ways because I know that a lot of people <laughs> don't care about kilowatts per hour, you know, tariffs and, and so on, right? Let's be honest. No, well, and and uh, there was that that, that part in uh, there's a part in your book you talk about your your ability to feel things is is your superpower and using that to uh, create some sort of art will will make the difference whether it be a song or a documentary or a photograph as you just mentioned and and wildly speaking of using using photographs or using information to your uh, to your benefit the original of the photograph you mentioned of the young girl fleeing napalm was cropped. The the uncropped version shows an American soldier standing with an arm's reach of her just reloading a camera, not giving a shit. And it's hor- It's even more horrifying because wow. you see this kid, this 19-year-old kid from Kansas or something, mm-hmm. just like, yeah, whatever. It's another child on fire. And, you know, it's so, yeah, but I wanted to say, like, the sort of stuff you're talking about, the things that change minds, I don't know if there's any young people in your life, like little people, but I watch a lot of Octonauts. I mean, talking, I'm a lot. I've got a three-year-old and a nearly 19-year-old, and the little one watches a lot of Octonauts. And every episode on the new seasons, the ones that have been commissioned by Netflix, every episode, they are, for example, the Red Fox has moved into the Arctic fox's cave because the red fox now finds it warm enough to go further north. And the Arctic fox has never had to deal with this. The Arctic fox makes caves, the red fox does not. The red fox suddenly goes, I'm too cold, I need a place to hide, finds the Arctic fox's cave. And so the octonauts have to go and build, you know, help the red fox and help the Arctic, like every day, every episode. They're moving albatross away from the North Atlantic, from their nesting grounds that have been there for hundreds of years. They're moving the albatross to a safer place every episode and he's three that's fascinating and it's in this kind of storytelling i think mm. that yeah it's it's exactly but it's it's this kind of storytelling that changes hearts and minds more than the you know pathway graphs which just make my bowels want to open <laughs> which is fair enough you know well like i said it's not not an irrational response to be honest it's pretty scary stuff but yeah. it is really interesting what you're saying there because it's about storytelling and telling different stories and telling yep. better stories, to be honest, because this is the thing, right? We can choose the future that we want right now, right? We still can choose it. That's what I'm here to basically say on behalf of the scientific community of the, you know, the hundreds of people who worked on this report is that we can still determine how bad we let things get. And I think that we need people to really get that, like genuinely get that, but also understand that there's a real urgency. So this next decade they call the critical decade in terms of turning things around. And so I think when everybody starts to engage in different ways, whether it be the person that's sketching up these stories for these young kids to even get a sense of just that concept, that's really interesting. That probably wouldn't have happened when we were kids, right? I don't remember anything like that, Uh -uh. right? And so... Uh, Captain Planet showed up, but it was yeah, it was right. it was different. It was. 
Just a moment away from the podcast to let you know that support for this show so that we can afford to make it, it comes from you. You listening right now, you are supporting this show. Uh, not just because you listened, because you shared an episode with someone, because you rated, you reviewed, you liked, you subscribed, because you engaged with the clients, the ads that we play here, you bought things using the offer codes, all those things support this show. But most of all, because you sent some money our way using Patreon. Patreon is a way that allows you to support us in a way that Look, you might say, like, if you met me out at a cafe and you offered to pay for my coffee, hey, I like the podcast. No, let me get the coffee. It's on me just to say thanks. Like, if, if that would be something you would do, the price of a takeaway coffee once a month helps us make sure that we can keep paying all the people that make this show with me. There's five people on the staff now. By supporting the show, you're also making sure that someone who can't afford to support the show still gets a great podcast. Aren't you excellent? Look at you. And if you can't afford it, that's okay. Other ways you can support the show that don't involve money and to repay the value that I hope you feel when you listen to this show. Uh, other ways are, you know, you can like, you can rate, you subscribe, you leave a review. But most of all, it's recommending the show to other people, writing a blog post about it, telling a mate, telling your doctor, your bus driver, whoever. All that makes an enormous difference to us. If you would like to get in touch with me, it's super easy. You can either email me, uh, send us your email at gmail.com. There's also a link to the Discord in the show notes, which is growing really nicely. It's really nice to have people joining us there in Discord. It's truly a lovely place. You can find the link in the show notes for the Discord server. It's far more, I find it far more lovely than a Facebook group or something. It's, it's really quite lovely in there. I'm enjoying it very much. In a moment, we continue our conversation with Joelle. And we're going we're gonna to cover how the IPCC looks after the people that are doing this work, how, how they look after the scientist, how she looks after herself, plus the extraordinary opportunities that lay ahead of us. We're back with more from Dr. Gerges in just a moment. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. You say that in your book. Um, uh, what an extraordinary time to be alive. We are part of the generation that gets to heal the world, that will that will heal the world. And and you're right, it is incredible. We get to do this. We get to turn around to our grandchildren and go, yep, I was alive then. And this is what mum and dad, this is what grandma and grandpa did. And that's unbelievable. It's totally what a, unbelievable. What a thing. It, it, what, a, what, a, what, a, what a thing to be given. It really is. That is actually pretty mind-blowing if you stop and think about it. And to me, it is the most significant challenge we've ever faced as a species if you stop and think about it because a lot of these other things were quite regional in terms of you know whether it's civil rights or gender equality and things like that but we're talking about basically trying to restabilize the, uh, the planetary system right we're trying to stabilize the earth's climate into something that is manageable and habitable for humans to continue to thrive and i think that that right there 
is the moment to right the wrongs of the past, to not just be overindulging in all these things that have just completely tipped the balance. And you don't need to be a scientist to understand something coming out of equilibrium, you know. You know when you've used something too much and you know when things are out of kilter. I, I, I think most people can intuitively understand that. And the thing is about the moment we're in, it's like every collective decision we've ever made to pollute the planet has led us to this point. And so it is the moment where we can choose to to unwind that, to repair, to repair that damage. And to me, that becomes a, a profoundly significant thing to engage in. And if you stop and you think about it, what could be more important the, than that? Honestly. <laughs> and so in many ways, it, yeah. it's a counter to that sort of sense of despair because we yeah. can do something. And I would rather be part of the group that tried than not. And that's ultimately yeah. all we can do. Not, not one of us is going to save the world on our own, right? It, it's yeah. a collective thing and, and, and we might save it for a while and we'll have two steps forward and three steps back and all that sort of stuff, but at least you're stepping in the right direction. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you mentioned civil rights before. You mentioned gender equality. You know, it's not like civil rights ended. These things are still happening today, yet when you speak of gender equality or gender diversity, uh, more and more we understand the the standard that we walk past is the standard that we accept. And more and more we are willing to go uh, like in a group chat or, you know, whatever, even sell, telling a mate, you know what? I, I don't know about that joke, mate. I don't, you know, you may not realise that when you say that it comes across kind of like, kind of, kind of like, and I don't, you wouldn't want that and you wouldn't want your kids to see you say that. So uh, just, just letting you know, you can take that or leave it, you know. And we are more and more comfortable with calling out as you mentioned in your book, calling out things about racism or misogyny and stuff like that. Getting comfortable with calling out climate bollocks uh, (laughs) or denialism is something that we need to be comfortable with, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think that, again, it comes back down to the shifting of social and cultural values, like saying that we, we don't want to be a society, we don't want to be a world that is divided by hatred and divided by all these things that are really, at the end of the day, pretty pointless, right? because we all are human beings and we all share this one planet and we can think about really trying to use our extraordinary talents and resources to to better things rather than to make things worse. And so I love that idea of leaving a legacy mm. that is is one of repair. And to me, yeah. I feel like that is a, that is a really motivating thing for me because I feel like one day we will look back at the, the 2020s as the as the most important decade in our history of whether we rose to the challenge or not. And, and so I think that, I think we'll do it, but I feel that we have to have the social movement and the social movement is out there. And that's also why in the book I talk about, you know, there's the school strikers with Greta Thunberg um, spearheaded that group, but there's also indigenous people and there's farmers and it is such a diverse movement. It isn't just, a whole bunch of climate activists and things like that. It, like it's a whole range of people because it's the human family. And ultimately, I think that yeah. when we come back to that idea, I'm going to hold on to that idea because that's motivating for me and because that I because I honestly believe and I've experienced in my own life the altruism that's that's possible and 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 also the care that is inherent to human beings. Like we are nurturing beings many of us okay you get your sociopaths and your narcissists and your whatever right or people that have really severe mental health or other issues that 
that are kind of destructive and aren't really pulling in the direction of what's good for the um, for the collective good. But I actually think most people are pretty pretty decent and want to do the right thing. And so I am going to do everything I can to be one of those people and that helps restore someone else's faith in humanity, whether it's like, you know, if you stop and think about it, and I yeah. talk about it in the book, like for me, you know, working as an IPCC scientist was like a really incredible honour, to be honest, uh, of, of realising the altruism that is present in people. But also you look at like the healthcare workers during the COVID pandemic that we're still experiencing or the firefighters that get out and protect our precious places or, or the teachers working around the clock to keep our kids in school and, and also at university as well. Like you can't say that, that humans are, are all awful and no one cares it, it, that's very black and white thinking so I think you can choose how you want to show up in that moment and so for me that again is the empowering element and thinking about do I want to be part of the shift in the in the in the social norm around say um, gender equality or all those other different things and the same thing of climate crisis the climate uh, the climate crisis is still for many people very overwhelming coming back to the start of our conversation yeah uh, it is really overwhelming but there's also there are different ways in and you don't necessarily need to be across every single aspect of the science because we have scientists, that's what they do. But yeah. what I'm here to say is we need your help. So we, we have scientists doing this, but we need other people in other sectors using their own influence in their own way, whether it's of the, you know, the, the, the family nucleus, whether it's just all the choices you make within that family unit. And that to me is, the, is so, you know, the carbon footprint that that actually is meaningful in my view, right? Because yeah. it all stacks up. It's like the Russian dolls, right? It's like everything kind of culminates <laughs> up into something different. So, well, it, collectively it ends up shifting things. And and one yeah. of the interesting things I, I talk about in the book um, is that you only need 25% of a population to shift a social norm. To me wow. that was incredible because it's it's only 25% and then the rest of the population will come with, right? So it, it just you need to just get that critical mass and so sometimes yeah. people think everyone needs to understand this and all this sort of stuff. Well, actually, no, you, there are going to be some entrenched people. Just this morning I got hate mail telling me I'm a waste <laughs> of space, telling me I don't understand anything, I'm an idiot, the rest of it. And it was wow. it was pretty um, not the nicest thing to read at, you know, 7 o'clock in the morning, but it, it, I still get it and, and I continue to get that. And, I, and, and to be honest, there's going to be that kind of hatred and vitriolic kind of attacks mm. and misogynistic um sort of hatred is is really um it hurts right from time to time it actually hurts but then i just stop and think these people don't know me and actually no. i don't care because no. th if i think about it if they take out someone like me then they win <laughs> they win you know yeah. I, I, right because ultimately i'm trying to be a voice for a community of people that to be honest a lot of us are pretty nerdy, right? We're a whole bunch of nerdy scientists. A lot of people don't like talking to the public. A lot of us are really introverted and uh, this isn't easy. And so that's why with this book, I feel like I brought my full self to it, my professional and my personal self, because I had to throw the full arsenal at it because I know that it's not enough just to try and convince people with facts and figures. I had to bring my, my human self to it, if that makes sense. Because, because for a lot of scientists, we do disconnect those things because we have to be rational and objective and all those sorts of things. But then it, it's disingenuous to say that we don't have a, an emotional response to our world. And I think <laughs> that I hope that my book, and I've actually received emails from colleagues, which is making me feel really um, supported, where people say, thank you for having the courage to say the things that we say behind closed doors. 
but it's yeah. actually how we feel as well. And, and I think that this is, this is where we change the conversation, right? Yeah, because that, that person, that hate mail person, you mentioned colleagues, so you got two emails. One, someone who doesn't know you, colleague knows you. Uh, the person, I don't know, I'm, hey, I'm really fucking sorry that it happens. I know what it's, I know what it is. I don't, I don't get the misogyny, but I, I do get the, you know, who are you, you're supposed They're not reacting to me. They're reacting to a projection of, you know, some sort of wild kind of simulacrum of what I am. It's not me. It's what they think I am that they're reacting to. Fine. Knock yourself out, pal. Here's the thing. Um, Dr. Gerges, she's, she's fighting to save the world. That person lives in too. All right. She's not gonna. She's not trying to save the world just for only the people that like her. She's trying to save the world for everyone. I've got to say, I've got to say, reading reading your book, never before have I wanted to go and count rings on trees in, in enchanted New Zealand forests as much uh, as as that. The way you write about, and and I think this is a, a great in point for for people if they're worried about you know protect what you love. Yes, we love our children, we love our families. But the way you write about how unbelievable nature is, Wolf and I, this morning, we read a book about a spider and then we watched a video about a spider where we found a spider in the garden. If you think about what a spider does, I can't, I can't do that. I have to go down to Bunnings and get a thousand feet of rope. Like, no, a spider can do all of it. I wanted you to know, just to, to signal our virtue to you, we have a will of my pine in a pot in our house. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> That's amazing. You've got a living fossil. We do. We do. And I think it's really important to just have those moments. And when we think about what we want to leave for our kids and like, oh, I never thought about that. Yes, you fucking have. The day you sign up for your job, you maybe got signed up for a super fund. The day you sign up for a super fund, you filled out a box in the form going, who am I going to leave this to? And you thought about what do I want to leave for this person? The next box should be, and how do you want to leave the planet? Because it's exactly the same. Where your super goes matters. You've already thought about what kind of world you want to leave your child or the person who survives you. Uh, you want to be sure that they're safe and protected. This, just think of it like another box on your on your super fund, you know? Um, you spoke about the other stuff you do to behind closed doors. And this part I'm really kind of interested in. We talked about pediatric cancer earlier on. But look, honestly, if you're a scientist working on the IPCC reports, you are pediatric oncologists in a war zone, uh, you know, <laughs> in a flood and a tsunami all at once. How do you, what's the OHS of protecting your mental health in that space? Because it's got to be devastating. How do you avoid PTSD? How do you avoid burnout? How do you avoid shutdown? What are some things that you guys do as a process that keeps you able to do your jobs? Yeah, really, really good question. So unfortunately, a lot of this is done on an individual basis. So this is actually a bit of an issue in our in our field, to be honest, is that, as I said, it's a bit of a taboo to be talking about our emotional response to our work because some people would say that that compromises your objectivity and so on and so forth. But I actually think that that's not right. I think we need to change that narrative, right, because you wouldn't send somebody out to a war zone and then not come and talk to them about doing counselling afterwards to see how they process that. So I think that maybe there will be a generational shift in that. I can see that there's a lot more awareness in the younger generation of the students that I teach and things like that. But in terms of the IPCC scientists, they did have a couple of things in place during the IPCC writing process where we could attend these um, add-on workshops to talk about sort of our response to some of these things. But it's more in the context of sort of managing high-pressured environments and stress and how to be more inclusive and things like that. But occasionally the conversation would naturally drift into how it was for us and many of us was feeling so under the pump and, and, and never been, I guess, so inundated with all this 
material and many of us were first-time authors in terms of having been through other IPCC cycles. And so I think the IPCC is stepping very slowly in that direction. But to be honest, because it's such a fast-paced environment, Mm. Again, like a a war zone or or an emergency department, everybody is just doing what they can because time is so limited and there's no time to to think about it and and let alone process it. So for me, writing this book was really my way of of processing the emotional response of what I'd just been a part of. And and that's why I think that um, it felt really important to share that in, in more of a public way to also provide colleagues permission to say, well, actually, I kind of felt like that too. Yeah. Or whatever it is that to sort of validate their own emotional response because to pretend that we're just scientists and not human beings is again it's disingenuous to pretend like yeah. we don't have emotions. And I think that I hope that this book is part of a series of conversations that continues to happen out there in the public where we need to start to take better care of the people on the front line of this. So whether it be the climate scientists, also people, for instance, in the Torres Strait having to sandbag their places because they know that the sea level's rising or people in Lismore who who are literally some people right now with the latest rounds of um, flooding are just experiencing PTSD when it rains. The other night it rained so hard here I couldn't sleep because I was like, is my neighbourhood going to flood again? What's going to happen? And a lot of people, and it's a very common response to natural disasters, but in, increasingly so when they keep happening time after time, as you mentioned earlier, that this isn't just like a one in 100 year event. We're getting these extreme events stacking up. And so that's part of the, I guess, really obvious way of talking about climate change is realising that these things start to become more common and they start to compound. And we don't want a future like that, so we need to rein it in quickly. So I guess it is a really complex issue. There's so many different, so many moving parts. Mm. And I think for me, I what you were saying before, thank you for the feedback on my writing about the natural world, because I think for me, it is my fascination as a scientist and as a human being with the natural world that motivates what I do. So I, it's impossible for me to go into these ancient rainforests and not be moved in a, in, a, in a visceral way. Nature is extraordinary. And I think most people who are alive have probably watched a David Attenborough documentary, whatever you might think of him. He has brought the natural world into our home and, and seen things that most people will never see. I mean, he's probably seen more of the natural world than anyone who's ever lived, to be yeah. honest. And, and to me, that that all of his documentaries will be archival. Some of those ecosystems and places won't exist in potentially another hundred years from now. And I think that when we come back to that fascination, we protect the things that we love, right? So it's coming back to that idea that when we really care about that little spider and that it's part of an incredible ecosystem, and not just what the monetary value of that spider and, and its ecosystem, you know, service and, and those monetized things because part of the reason why we've got to where we've got to is a lot of traditional economic models uh, don't even include environmental damage. They call them externalities and externalities don't have a dollar value, right? I remember learning about this at university. I had to do environmental economics and it was really interesting because it made me realize that, again, there's monetary value and there's cultural value. And to say there's no cultural value in the spider and the ecosystem and in the rainforest is is madness actually and it's got us to this point and when you actually stop and think about the other ways of think, viewing the, the natural world and I do write about indigenous worldviews and other ways of thinking about things that not everything has to have a, a dollar value is that the only thing to, I would say the intrinsic value of the Great Barrier Reef the largest living organism on the planet and keeping that alive is really important I don't really care that there's you know 64 you know billion dollars that comes out of it that's really great yeah 
but actually uh, I'm more interested in keeping alive that part of the earth that um, is extraordinary and irreplaceable. Unfortunately, the decision making the decision making is in the hands of the people where money is the language that they respond to. And but we can uh, change that. Part right? of me is, as I said earlier, yes. But right now, like if that's what it takes, then that's what it takes to get the conversation started. Yes, that's fine. Exactly. Uh, it's let's, a good let's go entry from there. Point. Because we can meet we can meet at the table. Yeah, we can meet at the table going, this is the dollar, this is the dollar value. And here is the value of it to us as a community. I could I could talk to you forever about this. You know, I could talk to you about how yeah, the fossil fuel industry is essentially just colonialism with a different uh, <laughs> a different brand name and a different logo. We could talk about social justice. We could talk about uh, displacement. We could talk about managed retreats. We could talk about the, the impact of immigration. We could talk about all kinds of things. But I have to tell you this, Joel, when I was when I was really, really sick, my brain could not accept that people like you existed. I knew you did. The, the part of my brain that was still well was like, of course they exist. But the part, the, the, the horror doom that had taken control of my, my myself uh, was like it just invalidating it completely. So I'd, li- I'd like to know, like in your in your day-to-day life, what are some things that you, someone in one of the authors, one of the lead authors, the IPCC reports, what do you do to make sure that your resilience is there every day? Does it involve exercise? Does it involve sleep? Yeah, what, how so do you do it? Another really, really excellent question. And thanks for the opportunity to talk about this actually. I, I take this really seriously because I also have to balance and, and manage my own mental health um, as well. And I think it has gotten worse because of, you know, I think with IPCC it's probably the worst it's ever been because of the, you know, exposing myself to just such intense realities was really, really difficult. But for me it's about being back in my physical body. So whether it's swimming in the ocean, yoga, going to the gym, all these different things that get me back into my physical body, in touch with my breath and remembering that we just – Ultimately, at the end of the day, we're all just animals on this planet and we're a human in a body, right? So we have to take care of that and really take that seriously. Like that is like number one, right? In terms of really making sure that you don't just become a brain walking around and so disembodied from your <laughs> physical being. It, it's really important. And so for me, so number one is is really exercise. Number two is also, you know, really getting out in nature because I do feel like I'm part of an ecosystem, I'm part of a living world. And I know that can be hard in urban environments sometimes, but even if in small ways, just being close to another living entity, whether it be plants or, you know, pets or whatever, just to remind you of the different life forms that are there and our kinship with the rest of the natural world, I think that's really important. And speaking of kinship, it's also connecting with other beautiful, awake thoughtful souls who care about this stuff you know and 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 just really reminding yourself that there is goodness in the world and you probably have some of those people in your inner circle and reminding yourself that there are people that there are really people that care and and that it isn't all just doom and gloom it is really easy to sometimes focus on all the things that are going wrong and all the people that make things worse and sometimes to be honest how I also manage it is, is sometimes limiting my exposure to to media and social media because I can find that that can amp up my anxiety so for instance with IPCC I had to make myself completely open to it I couldn't look away I didn't have the luxury of looking away and some people do have that luxury so I feel like I kind of took one for the team in that sense and and all of us did it in a way of just really being this kind of filter for the rest of the community and I think I'm sort of dealing with the the aftermath of that still to be honest um 
I've sort of been dealing with a bit of burnout and and a few physical things uh, as well. But so I, I think in my own mind, this whole idea of self-care is not some airy, fairy, fluffy thing. It's actually self-preservation. And there's no point in completely burning yourself out or being so emotionally disillusioned that you can't even engage and enjoy your life. That, that, that's a tragedy, I think. And I think it also is kind of straying away from the reality. So because our minds are incredible and they can jump to all sorts of conclusions, but that's also why I like science because science can kind of ground you back in to, okay, all right, there are all these things that could happen, but what's actually happening right now? And we might not have a huge amount of um, knowledge about the very next step, but we can step in that direction and be a part of that change that we want to to see. So for instance, coming back to the medical analogy, we can then go to make a doctor's appointment, we can go and get the next test and we can try and do the best to to rein in a, a, yeah. a terrible diagnosis and hopefully have treatment to avert the worst aspects of um, of the condition. So I, I see the same thing in the climate space. It's, it's so important, as you mentioned before, and this is one of the things that I personally found really powerful is that, and it was, you know what, it was, it was after I got divorced, I'm married again, wonderfully. Uh, I remember after I got divorced, I was like, if my brain goes to the past, I'm in pain. If my brain goes to the future, I'm in pain. I was running at the time this happened. Uh, but if I'm here, just taking my steps, running, doing what I know makes me feel better, I'm fine. Because when we go to the future, if we want to look at it and we're creatures that are only here because we were risk averse and we um, imagine how bad things could be. And so we're like, mm, we don't want that. Um, we're paralyzed. We have no choices except don't move. But if we're here in this moment, we have possibility. And that allows us to take a step, as you mentioned, in any direction. And that is more powerful by any stretch of the imagination than being stuck and paralyzed in fight, flight, freeze, whatever. Joelle, you are amazing. And I'm just so grateful that you have dedicated your career to this because you are one of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who are working bloody, bloody hard for all of us, even the cranky people that write us emails. Um, Thank you. You're amazing. Thank you for writing this book. Thank you for writing Sunburnt Country. Thank you. Just thank you. Thank you. I'm really touched by what you've just said. Um, <laughs> honestly, it's, it's really beautiful to be acknowledged for the work that I do and the kinship that people like us feel as well. Because, you know, when you mentioned at the start that you were, you know, you've got a real sensitivity around this issue, I want you to be able to engage in it in a way that feels healthy and safe. And I hope that my book is is a step in that right direction. And that's the thing, when we kind of, have these networks of other good people out there doing what they can. You know, you're giving me a platform here. So thank you. And I, I'm really grateful that other people can listen to our conversation. And if they glean something that might just be yes. part of this critical mass and, and it, it, it's, all, it's all that sort of thing that I think that keeps everything feeling worthwhile and, and, and life is worth living. So thank you for the work that you do. And good on you also for actually coming <laughs> back. You could have chosen to, to not take that hard road back. I mean, you're engaging, you're back engaging on, on the topic and we need that, right? This podcast has been it. Honestly, I, I started early on. I was like, if I say no to this, it's just going to get worse. So early, early on. And, and trust me, I've got stuff planned for the afternoon as yeah. down regulating. Like I'm actually okay. And I'm actually really happy that I'm feeling okay, but I had yeah. planned anyway. There's a whole bunch of down regulating stuff that I planned after this, because that's a part of yeah. my management strategy. All right. Is like, okay, I'm going to do this thing. And then I'm going to spend as, like, you're like in stretch after yep. a run, you know, otherwise you're going to get sore. Like I have, uh, there is, there, that's a part of this. I don't do this Absolutely. without the other thing. And that's a, a, a huge thing that I, I have learned. I could talk to you all day. <laughs> you're just the best. Um, it's lovely thank you to so meet much. you. 
That was Dr. Joel Gerges. Her latest book, Humanity's Moment, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope, is out right now. Get it where you get your books. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, send us your email at gmail.com or find the Discord server. You can find the links in the show notes. And it's lovely to see you there. It's lovely to have conversations about the, the episodes and people have questions, further questions about the guest or, you know, what else was going on on that day or how they were. And I'm, I'm really happy to engage and talk about those interactions that I have with the great people that come on the show. It's a really nice space. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of this show. Thank you to the whole team that helped me make the show today. Bree Steele on research, Toe Hyder on music, Andy Ma on audio and video post-production, Rachel Barrett, the executive producer and chief logistics officer of everyone and everything. Come find us on YouTube. I should have mentioned that. Come find us on YouTube. We're on YouTube. You can subscribe to us on YouTube. Full video episodes show up about four weeks, six weeks after they um, show up here. Come say hi in the Discord. I'll see you on Wednesday. Until then, sleep well, yeah? As, mu- as good as you can after listening to that because I know I will. sleep. If I'm sleeping well, I promise you can sleep well. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.